Well, it never, it never fails. I will, um, I will go to pastors' conferences or meet people in the ministry for different reasons to help support them, and I'll always ask them. It always comes up, how's church going? How's ministry going? And almost every time I go to one of these conferences, there will be one person that says, I love, I love the ministry. I love it. And then they say this, you know, the church would be great. If it weren't for the, for the people. And then they slap you on the back and they say, ain't it the truth, brother? <laughs> like that, they give the hearty laugh. Ain't it the truth? And actually, no, it is not the truth. The truth is the church is the people. The church is the people. They are what makes it so fascinating, wonderful, crazy, joyful, because without people, you have no love. Without people, you have no joy, and the building will become a dead sarcophagus with nothing alive in it. Kind of reminds me of the old Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone used to be one of my favorite shows. Old Twilight Zone was this man who hated people. Hated people. Loved to read books, though. One day, he was in the bank vault, and the atomic bomb went out, and he comes out of the bank vault, and there's nobody left alive on the earth. And he's so happy says, finally, I'll be able to read in peace. And he goes to get a book. And when he goes to get a book, his glasses fall off. And he steps on them and he can never see again. Tragedy, isn't it? That's what it's like without people. It's just dead. It's a dead thing. People are important because they're made in the image of God. Every one of us are made in his image. They're precious. We're precious. You are loved by God. We even sing it. For God so loved the world. And then we stopped singing. We sang it again. That was great. I love that. Did you feel that silent? Uh-oh, what's going on? 1 Peter 3, 7, God is talking to both men and women, both husbands and wives, and he says, we are all heirs of the precious gift of life. We're lords and ladies. We are sons and daughters we are saints and stewards, and God loves us all. So when someone's called to be a believer, and they're asked to join a church, they are asked to join the family of God, and it's required of us to love those who are in the family, because God is the, our Father, and people are God's business. But here's the, here's the honest truth, though. Here's the kicker. People are still people. They will drive you crazy. They will make you want to pull out your hair. They will cause you to say, I can't live with these people, but I can't live without them. But the truth is, you're going to be hurt by somebody all the time. The church will hurt you. The church will often offend you and criticize you because the church is full of broken people. And when you are offended or when you're hurt, there will be this temptation to grow bitter. And bitterness has a, has a way of lodging into your soul where you want to just quit and you want to leave. But God says love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love always hopes. Love always perseveres. Love never fails. And that's what the message is going to be all about today. It's about loving people. Man, don't you love these new slides? Oh, 
I don't know how to tell you. I love, when I get on my computer and I make slides, and it looks really good on my computer, and our old slideshow, it looked like green goo, and now it looks just like I put, oh, I'm so excited, I can't tell you. I hope, are you guys excited about these new, oh, man. Missy, are you excited for these new things? Man, I'm excited about that. Sorry about that. Anyhow, anyhow, what we're going to talk about today is people. We've been going through the book of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah is very simple. It's about a guy who left his great job, and he traveled 1,500 miles to help his people build a wall. It's really what it's all about. And he comes there, and last week we learned that people didn't want them to build the wall. So there were all these outside forces trying to stop them, even to the point where they were threatening death. If you keep building this wall, we're going to kill you. So you have all these outside threats. And last week we, we learned they overcame them. Now in chapter 5, the threat is no longer outside the walls. It's internal. It's between people. Satan can't get you on the outside. He'll get you within the body. And so if you look with me. I'm just going to read the first six verses, but we're going to go through chapter 5. I'm reading from the NIV. Now the men, this is verse 1, chapter 5. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Verse 3. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during a time of famine. Verse 4. Still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery, which is indentured servitude. In order to pay bills, they had to send their kids to farms to work. Some of your daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry, this is Nehemiah talking, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was hot. I was very angry. So that's what we're going to read about. What is the issue? What's going on? Why is Nehemiah so angry? It's the same issue you and I deal with all the time. Same issue our church deals with often. It's the same issue that households are at each other's throat. And the issue is money, money, money. Always money. Always seems like it's money. Don't you hate money? I love money, but I hate money at the same time. Money, money, money can drive you crazy. Well, in this story, the problem was some families had to mortgage everything just to be able to pay the bills. It says in verse 2, they didn't have enough money because they had a lot of mouths to feed, and they were help building the wall so they didn't have enough time in the day to make enough money to get grain for their family. They just didn't have enough time. They were stressed because they had too much on their plate to where they didn't have the extra margin to make the bills. Verse 3, there's a famine. That meant egg prices went up. 
Yes, that means bread prices went up and feed for the livestock went up. Economists call this inflation. I don't think inflation exists, though, you know. I don't think any of you have ever experienced that. And then you have chapter 4. Chapter 4 really hits home because it's tax season. It says in verse 4, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our vineyards, on our homes, on our fields. The tax man never, never, never stops. The Beatles were right. If you drive the road, I'll tax the street. If you try to sit, I'll tax your seat. If you get too cold, I'll tax the heat. If you take a walk, I'll tax your feet because I'm the tax man. That's right. Can anyone identify to any of these problems? I mean, no, the Bible's not relevant. Some old ancient book. We don't deal with this stuff anymore. I deal with every one of those things. Don't you feel that tax man behind you and you want to put a pit in your front yard so he lands in? Anyhow, let's keep... <laughs> But here's even the worst problem. So they don't have enough money, so what do they do? They borrow money. Who do they borrow from? Their fellow Jews. They're borrowing from people in their own community. And it's not good. It is not good. Their own people were rich. They lent them money. But look what verse 5 says. Although we are of the same flesh and blood, it means we're from the same tribe. As our fellow Jews. And though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved. So the problem is, there's a side of Jews that are loaning out the money and they're having no compassion on their fellow Jews because they would rather make profit over people. Greed over glorifying God. Money over the mission of building the wall. That's the problem, and that's what's going on. Because some families had to hire out their own children to Gentile farmers to pay their debt, and they didn't let them off the, off the hook. The end of verse 5 shows just how callous these other Jews were. It says, some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So these Jews who are loaning, they aren't giving them any other, they're not letting them off the hook. No. You can hear their response. And here's what your average person, even in our own day and age, would say. You know what? Your debt isn't my problem. You made the deal. You were the fool to get so deep into it. I'm sure they said all we are doing is what any good businessman would do. Charge a bit of interest because we must shoulder the risk. Business is business. So if you've got to pay it, you've got to pay the pipe. I can hear him saying that. And uh, Nehemiah didn't like it. Look at verse 6. When I heard their outcry, that means the people who were in debt, who let their own kids go help pay that debt, he was angry. In the Hebrew it says, I'm burning mad. It's because they were looking down upon their fellow Jews. There were two classes of people. Look what they say in verse 5. Although we're of the same flesh and blood, our children are just as good as yours. There must be some feeling of, you guys stink, but we're a little bit better. 
So this is the first reason why he was angry is because they treated their fellow countrymen with contempt. Oh, you're in debt? It's your fault. You got problems at home? That's your fault. Get off of my back. We're not that stupid. It's kind of like the pogues and the kooks, if you know what I mean. Does anybody know what that is? Josie, do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Does anybody else know what I'm talking about? See, people do. It's this new show that, well, it's been on for three years. See, you guys know it's called Outer Banks. you got the pogues and the kooks. One island, two groups of people. Here we have the walls of Jerusalem. One city, two groups of people. Two tribes. A big problem in the eyes of God occurs when people who have money and are set financially or have everything together are quick to look down on the problems of others. Many times it is bad money management. Many times it's even circumstances from choices. But often we really don't know what causes people to be in tough times. We have no idea. When you become a pastor, you get to hear a lot of times what's going on. And you'd be shocked what causes people to get in the situations they're in. If we were honest, we all have our own issues. We all do. I know wealthy people whose children won't even speak to them. I know people living in million-dollar homes who haven't said I love you to their spouse in 15 to 20 years. I know people that on the outside look pretty good, but daily they go home and they're battling addictions, they're battling substance abuse, domestic violence, but they look good. The truth is, we all have hidden sins. We all are massive failures, if we'd be honest. But the question is, doesn't God want us to show mercy and treat other people better than ourselves? In this case, they had no compassion or mercy for one another. I want you to look at this verse. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 4. It's a very, very hard verse for some people to take. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. So the church in Corinth were, they had troubles, they had problems. They had internal people problems. They're pointing fingers, they had different groups. And then Paul says in verse 7 of chapter 4, this is Romans, 1 Corinthians, he says this, Who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? So what he's saying is, do you know the differences that we all have are, are God-given differences? The talents you have are God-given talents. Your ability, some of you can make money hand over fist. Do you take credit for that or do you ever thank God for giving you the ability to do and then he says, then why do you act like you're better than others? Because those gifts you have were given to you. I don't think people like to look at it like that. The second reason why Nehemiah was so mad was in their callousness or their lack of mercy for their countrymen, God's name was being mocked by the Gentiles or soiled rolled in mud in the communities surrounding them. That's what verse 9 is about. Look at verse 9. 
So I continued, What you are doing is not right, Nehemiah said. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? One writer said the money problems they were facing were caused in part by the greed of those who wanted to make a profit from the money troubles of others. And this is clearly against the law of Moses. Exodus 22.25 says this. He's talking to the Jewish community. And he says, if you lend money to one of my people among you, so God calls everybody his, if you loan money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not be like a money lender. Charge him no interest. But these people here were ignoring the law of God because they were making bank. And because they were ignoring the law of God, the Gentiles noticed. And the Gentiles were mocking God. Paul warns about this in Romans 2.24. You brag about the law or you brag about being godly. Do you dishonor God by breaking the law or by by being ungodly, as it is written, God's name is being blasphemed among the non-believers because the ungodliness of the believer. So in this situation, you can imagine a Gentile farmer. And knocking on his door is a maiden. He just gave her money and she said, can I work for you again? And you can imagine a farmer saying, why do you have to come work for me again? And she says, well, because my neighbor is charging my folks some pretty high interest and keeps demanding payment. If we don't pay it, we starve. And then the Gentile farmer probably scratches his head and said, yeah, but I thought your God was supposed to take care of his chosen people. And yet you run to the Gentiles to find the answer to your needs, some God you guys have. When we act ungodly, it does not look good on God's name. We're supposed to be different. We're supposed to live differently. We're supposed to show love. Jesus said, they will know you are Christians by your love. So Nehemiah gets fed up with the stubbornness of the people. So he goes on the offensive and look at verse 10. He goes on the offensive in verse 10. And he says, I and my brothers, so Nehemiah and his brothers, and my men are also lending the people money and grain. We too have enough money and grain to lend, but let us stop charging interest. Let us stop charging interest. So you could say the lesson he's trying to get across, and the lesson for all of us is this. Honoring God by loving your neighbor is more important than getting rich. Honoring God Doing things for the glory of God by loving your neighbor and loving the church is more important than having a big retirement account. So you have to ask it like this. Does God exist? I know we can sing to him. But the question is, does he exist? And if he exists, don't you think he is watching how you treat the people he loves? If God exists, will he not reward those who honor him by sacrificing for the sake of others? And if God is real, will he not discipline those who are only living for themselves? Look at verse 13, the end of 12 and 13. 
It says, Then I summoned, so Nehemiah summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they promised. So the priests, the nobles, and officials had the money. These are the guys that are loaning it out. So he's making them promise not to charge interest. So look at verse 13. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way may God shake out their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. Meaning, God's watching, and if you ignore God or make a promise and renege on that promise, God's going to shake you out like I did my garment. He's going to discipline you. Which is a lot worse than losing a few extra bucks. So I was thinking, why was Nehemiah so mad? Like personally, why was he so incensed? I thought about what he gave up just to go help build the wall. So he was living in the city of Susa in chapter 1. He was a high official in the big city. At that time, the number one city in the world. And he was a top official. So he was an honored administrator of the king, which meant he probably made more money than a, a Saudi Arabian prince. So he had cash. Then he had to travel 1,500 miles on horseback to Jerusalem through desert wasteland. He didn't have to do that. He could have stayed in Susa. And then he started help building the wall with his own hands and his own shoulders. He didn't have to do that. Then he had to help fight against Sanballat and Tobiah in possible mortal combat. He didn't even have to do that. He could have stayed in Susa and lived a nice, comfy, Nerf ball life. And yet, here he is in Jerusalem, and these people he's come to serve, they can't even get along. And they're making money off each other. No wonder he's here. It reminds me of Paul. So Paul, in the New Testament, went all around the world, Asia to Europe, all through Greece. And in his mission, three missions, he was stoned, whipped, shipwrecked, went hungry, naked, and often the people in town hated him. Why did he do it? Because he feared God and he loved the church. Reminds me of this guy who left the golden beaches and a rich bounty of Cleveland, Ohio to come live in apple orchards in Michigan. Uh, enough of that guy. Is, <laughs> I do actually, I do love, I do love it, I do. Is God, but the question you have to ask yourself, is God worth serving? Is he? Do you want his favor where he pours blessing back to you? If you do, take the attitude of Nehemiah in the middle of verse 15. Look at verse 15 at the end. Well, 15 says, But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people, took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over. So the people that came before Nehemiah, the governor, man, they milk the people. They taxed them. They're kind of like the guys in D.C. I know I shouldn't talk bad about our own people in D.C. Anyhow, but listen to what he says at the end of verse 15. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. So what did he do? He wanted God's favor out of reverence. Reverence means in worship and pleading for his favor. He did two things. The first thing he did is he served. Look at verse 16. 
Instead, instead, I devoted myself to the work in this wall. All my men were assembled there for work. We did not acquire any land. I didn't make myself rich. I could have. And he didn't demand from others what he wouldn't do himself. He wasn't above the rest. There weren't two classes of people. In fact, he came underneath to serve them. He could have taken advantage, but he feared God. So instead of placing himself above, he put his back and his shoulders into getting the wall done. An honest man does the work first before he asks other people to do it. When we hire a pastor, so when we hired um, Will and when we hired Chris, I always will ask a new pastor when we hire him, I want you to do three things. This is really all I ask. Number one, I ask you to pray. Be a person of prayer. If you're going to work at this church, I want you to pray. Second thing is love the people in here. And then the third thing is work as hard as everybody else is. Because other people, they're going to work nine to five, and then they come and they serve the church. Work just as hard as that. And not only work hard for that reason, but, but keep working even when others won't. Keep doing service even if others quit or leave or get tired. Why? Because we're not here for ourselves. We're here to serve. Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and he gave his life as a ransom for many. So loving people is serving people. Loving the church is serving the church. Too often people see the church like a restaurant. If I like your service, I'll give you a nice tip. All right, buddy? And then they slap me on the back and leave. That's a good one today, brother. I might tie it. You want to be favored by God? Give. Look at 17 and 18. This is an amazing thing that Nehemiah did. He says, Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. So daily he had an extra 150 mouths to feed. People that were building the wall, they came out of his house, and he had a giant spread. Look how much he served on one day. Verse 18, each day, one ox, that's a big animal, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. So he brought in some Outback and Chick-fil-A for them, 150 guys. I know it's close to lunch, but, you know, probably better than that crispy chicken sandwich at Chick-fil-A. With the, anyhow. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every ten days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. We're in church, don't read that line. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor. Because the demands were heavy on these people. So what he's saying is, he not only could have, he could have taken interest from them, which he chose not to do. He didn't have to serve them food, but he did every day. And imagine how much money he could have made during inflation. He could have been a rich man, but he didn't care. He received money from the king's table, and he gave it out freely. So you could say he was generous. And in the same way, 
If you want God's favor, be generous with the resources God freely gave you. That's how you receive favor. Ephesians 1.7 says that God's grace was lavished upon us. When the Father sent the Son to die for my sins, He did not hold back. He gave us everything He had. And yet, so often, we hold back so we can have more. Or, a lot of times, like these people, it would have been easy for Nehemiah to say, you know what? That's your own fault for going into debt, you know. It's your fault for getting that stuck in that situation. But he never accused them. He gave freely. Look at Psalm 69. It's in the middle of the Bible. Psalm 69 is a chapter that is called a messianic prophecy. It was written about 700, maybe to 1,000 years before Jesus came. And it was told by... David, through the Holy Spirit, to kind of describe what life was like for Jesus. Some scholars call these the early days of Jesus, or when Jesus was a young man, what he went through. But it's verse 4 I want you to look at, of Psalm 69. It talks about what Jesus went through, for you and me. It says, those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Like, they hated Jesus. They hated him. And then it says, many are my enemies without cause, those who seek to destroy me. But it's at the end of verse 4 that always convicts me, especially when I want to be selfish. Listen to what it said. I am forced to restore what I did not steal. What does that mean? Every sin you have ever committed goes on a ledger of debt to God. Every offense you've ever committed, somebody has to pay that. It's not free. Jesus came to wipe your debt clean, so when he died on the cross, everything you've done has been blotted out, and at the bottom it says paid in full. You owe nothing. You owe nothing because Jesus paid everything. So if that is true, and we are to walk as Jesus walked, who are we to hoard? Final thought. It's verse 19, if we go back to Nehemiah. It's a little prayer that he prayed. Simple one-verse prayer. Goes into his little prayer closet, and here's what he prays. Says to God in verse 19, chapter 5, Remember me with favor, O oh my God, for all I have done to these people. His prayer request is simply this truth God remembers, He remembers those who give. Nehemiah was not on earth to serve himself because he feared God, and he's hoping when he goes into eternity, God will remember what he did on earth. Store not your treasures on earth where moth and rust corrode, but in heaven. Because where your treasure is, there your heart is also. God remembers the givers. Want to close on this verse, if you can go to Matthew chapter 6. It's the, it's the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, very first book in the New Testament. 
chapter 6, 1 through 4. And here's what it says, starting in verse 1. Jesus says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them, which means don't, you know, don't act this part of being godly. You know, don't come in and say, man, am I something else? I give a lot. I am a servant of God. He says, don't do that. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Verse 2, so when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their honor or their reward in full. So what he's saying, when people do things so other people will notice them, Jesus says, that's your reward, that's all you get. But look what he continues to say. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will remember and reward you. God remembers the givers. There's a verse, my favorite verse, one of them is in Hebrews chapter 11. And in verse 13, it talks about these people that were, they were hoping for the promise of a better country. And so a lot of the promises they were offered on this country didn't come true. All of the things they were hoping for, for on earth really never materialized because they were hoping for a better country. And it says in Hebrews 11 verse 13, because they were looking for a better country, God is not ashamed to be called their God. That to me is probably the greatest honor anybody could ever have. What do I want? I, I don't want God to be ashamed of me. I want God to say, you see that guy over there on the, sitting at that table next to the golden street up in heaven? That guy over there, Chris? That weird looking one? Jesus will say, I'm not ashamed of him. That's worth everything. So, did you know that there's really only two things that tell the truth about if you're saved or not? Like even now there's a revival in Asbury, which is really cool. A lot of people are like, is it real? Apparently Asbury College's revival broke out and everybody's like, is it real? Is it not real? It doesn't really matter to a degree. What matters are two things. How do you know if somebody's really different? How they treat people and how they spend their money. God remembers, the question is, will he remember you?